Hello from London, everyone, and a very warm welcome to you all to this LSC online public event, wherever you are around the globe. I am Sandra Javcelovic, Professor of Social Psychology here at the school, and it is my pleasure to be chairing this panel today with Professor Michael Tomasello, our very distinguished speaker, and as I like to think of him, an old friend of the Department of Psychological and Behavioral Science here at LSC. Before I introduce Mike, let me say uh, that this event is part of the LSE's online event series, an open for all program of lectures and debates, showcasing exceptional thinking and research about questions at the cutting edge of our knowledge about ourselves and the social worlds in which we live. Do keep an eye on our website and come along wherever you are. So this evening, we're going to start with Professor Tomasello delivering his talk, and then we'll have time for questions from you, the audience. Please use the questions function that uh, being, is being managed backstage by the amazing LSE public events team and our very own PBS, Rebecca Lee. Now to our speaker. Uh, today I have with me a truly exceptional scholar whose groundbreaking research and thinking in psychology in multiple other fields have been a source of knowledge and inspiration, not to say continuous challenge for all of us in psychology and beyond. Michael Tomasello requires no introduction and it would be impossible for me to list the hundreds of papers, many books and range of honors and prizes that he has received throughout his distinguished career. At a time when the expression world leading is so misused and sometimes diminished, I have no fear in saying that Professor Tomasello is the genuine article, a truly global world leading scholar and researcher. I'll refer to two of his achievements, the ones I like the most. In 2017, he was elected to the US National Academy of Science, one of the highest awards a scientist can receive. And back in 2009, and extraordinarily for a psychologist, he received the Hegel Prize, when no one less than Jürgen Habermas delivered the laudatory speech describing Professor Tomasello as a psychologist who was also a true philosopher. In his response to Habermas, Professor Tomasello spoke of the central normative question of the social sciences, which he phrased as, what can be done to encourage people to be more cooperative, to work together against war, against the degradation of our climate, and for the economic security of all? I cannot think of a question that is more central to addressing the challenges we live today as psychological, social, and so far earthbound beings. It is a question equally central to the mission and to the ambition of LSE, where commitment to the practice of psychology as a social science has a long history. That is why we're so delighted and so very proud to have Professor Michael Tomasello once again with us addressing the very issue, the central question of the origins of human cooperation. 
Mike, over to you. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you very much, Sandra. Um, uh, I am an old friend of the LSE. Uh, I think this is my third time giving a, a fairly major talk in the last 20 years. And uh, so I really appreciate it. Last time I was in a very grand lecture hall. It's somewhere in the knob, as I uh, understand it. Uh, and it's a little more humble setting here, but my little study here in uh, Durham, North Carolina is gonna have to work. So anyway, let me uh, go ahead and uh, share my screen. screen for a PowerPoint presentation. Okay, if, is, that, is that okay, everybody? Uh, Sandra, you can see that? <clears throat> um, as Sandra uh, said, um, I have been studying for some years now um, the origins of human cooperation. And origins means both phylogenetic, evolutionary, as well as ontogenetic, how it emerges in young children. Now, given Sandra's introduction, uh, uh, you may think that this is a little bit of an odd uh, approach to the topic because uh, one of the questions in the world today is why are we so uncooperative with one another? Why is there so much strife and uh, disagreement and not to mention wars. And all I want to argue to you today is that if you think humans are very uncooperative, you just kind of have the wrong baseline. Uh, you have to think about chimpanzees. <laughs> and then uh, you'll see that actually one of the remarkable features of human beings is how cooperative we are in evolutionary uh, context. Uh, but uh, that cooperation has some limits. And uh, maybe that would be a good thing for the question and answer period to try to think about the limits of it. But what I'm gonna argue to you today is that what really distinguishes humans from other um, primate species, um, my, my old answer used to be what really distinguishes us is culture. And I still believe that's a very good answer. But over the years, I've come to think that the deeper answer is cooperation and culture is one form of cooperation, a very special form, but it's a form of cooperation. So that's what I want to uh, argue to you today. Now humans are a species of great ape. We differentiated from chimpanzees and bonobos uh, only about uh, six million years ago. Uh, and yet um, uh, we are as close to one another as lions, uh, to chimpanzees and bonobos, as lions are to tigers, horses are to zebras, rats are to mice. That's how close we are in both evolutionary time and genetically. And yet the puzzle is that we humans have created complex technologies. We've created complex symbol systems. We've created complex social institutions. Uh, and great apes have not really created anything even vaguely resembling these things. So how is it that we can be so close evolutionarily and yet the lives we live, the um, world in which we live are so completely different. Um, and as I say, the, the ultimate answer is the cultural world that we have constructed and into which children are born and adapt. But what I wanna talk about today is a step before that, as it were, before the emergence of human culture evolutionarily and before human children become fully fledged members of a culture. Of course, they're born into a cultural context, but before they really are appreciating cultural conventions, cultural norms, cultural institutions, before they're fully fledged into the collective products of culture, they already 
are more cooperatively inclined and more, cooper more cooperatively skilled and inclined than are our nearest primate relatives. So what I'm envisioning evolutionarily is an early period before modern humans. So before Homo sapiens sapiens, culture comes with Homo sapiens sapiens. This is before that. I'll spare you any speculations about details exactly when, say several hundred thousand, 400,000 years ago, roughly. Um, and this is a period where humans, um, something in their ecology changed and they had to cooperate with one another in order to eat. And any individual who was not a good cooperator uh, just would not survive or would not pass on anything to their children. So uh, there emerged great interdependence among individuals. Individuals depended on one another and you couldn't do anything too harmful to anyone, to someone that you depend on. You can't go harming your cooperative partner. That leaves you in the lurch. So there's a, it, the individual interests and the interests of um, social collaboration uh, are now aligned. It's in my interest to help my cooperative partners because I need cooperative partners. So helping them helps me. So that's what we mean by interdependence. And that's how you get to this cooperative sort of spirit across uh, evol evolution in, in an evolutionary context. Added to that is that our cooperation we, uh, was, um, so, um, was characterized also by partner choice. So if you aren't a very, if you aren't a very good cooperator, maybe you're not very skilled or you're not very cooperative in the sense that, you know, we do something together and you hog it all and leave me out. Well, that's fine. You'll be good for today, but then I'm never going to cooperate with you again. And, um, and if anybody else in the group knows about it, they aren't either. So bad cooperators are shunned. And again, that means either that they die themselves or they don't pass along anything to their offspring. So humans were under very strong selective pressure to be cooperators. Now, let's now switch over to ontogeny. I believe we see the first manifestations of these species unique adaptations for cooperation. Now, let me be clear about the relation between evolution and ontogeny. What I'm claiming is that what you're gonna see here is the emergence of adaptations from hundreds of thousands of years ago of humans being a cooperative species, becoming a more cooperative species. And you now see it playing out in um, uh, young children. So these children, this is what I've called for a very long time, the nine month revolution, shared intentionality, I had that word back on the last slide as well. Shared intentionality is the label for the suite of cognitive skills and motivations, social cognitive skills and motivations that enable human beings to put their heads together with others and operate together and do things together for their mutual benefit. And you're going to see here, I'm going to show you several videos here, quick, all quick, and then some chimpanzees in a similar situation, a chimpanzee in a similar, some similar situations uh, in, the, in the slide following. And here are three um, um, contexts in which young children show their uh, collaborative skills and motivations, I should say. Collaboration, communication, where I'm gonna talk about showing, and joint attention, which is really a, something that characterizes all of them. And what I want you to focus on, I'm first going to start with collaboration, is what she's nine, this is nine month 
her nine month birthday. And that's why I get fairly excited when she starts doing some cool things because I thought, oh, you know, nine month revolution, let's film her on her nine month birthday. So here's a little game you're going to see. This is my daughter's little some years ago. And I roll the ball to her and my goodness, she rolls it back. Nine, mo nine months old and I'm so excited. I'm saying, keep the camera rolling. Now watch where she looks. She rolls it to me. Now she looks to the face. And she gets it back. She has a little trouble, but she rolls it back. And then, oh, it came back to her. That was a little bit of a surprise. And then she looks to the face. So the looking to the face is this evidence that it's a, a triadic relation. It's, it's not just her and the ball. It's not her and the activity. It's her and me and the ball doing something together. And you're going to see a comparison to that with chimpanzees and men. Now, the other one, this happens very quick. The one at the bottom is showing and this is a communication, of a form of communication that goes with this. This child is actually a little bit older than nine months, about 12 to 14 months. But watch, it happens very quickly. But here's a uniquely human form of communication. Just showing. All that is is, is it this cool? <laughs> the, the child doesn't want the father to do anything with it. She's not asking for help with it. Uh, or He's not asking for help with it or anything. It's just showing. And you won't find any other species just showing things to other just for the fun of it. Um, and this is not just a childish behavior. I would say this scales up into some of the things that we do most often in our social, our daily lives, in our social worlds, in the modern world. Gossip. Oh, did you hear about that? Oh, my God, that election. Oh, that football game. Uh, we just talk to people about things. We share things with them for no purpose other than just sharing. It's part of the social glue. The sharing is part of helps us build our social relationships. Now, finally, look at joint attention. So this is your classic book reading situation. This was also on the nine month birthday. And uh, the mom is pointing to something in the book. And now watch again what the child does looking. The child doesn't just look where she's pointing, but has to reference back to her. And you're going to see her also reference the sibling behind the camera. But And she looks back to mom and then points herself. Okay. So again, it's not just sticking her finger on that picture. And then she says something that vaguely sounds like baby and everybody gets excited. And she looks to the sibling. Okay. So um, uh, what you get here is the birth of this sharing of you and me sharing about something external. That's why it's called shared intentionality. It's not face-to-face -face sharing emotions. It's that, but it's more than that. It's you and me sharing about something external, about this game of ball, about this block I'm holding up, about the book we're reading. Now, uh, th this uh, this is going to go continuously. I'm going to go ahead and start it. This is, is lasts over a minute, uh, just a little over a minute. But this is a human-raised chimpanzee, about three years old, and the human caregiver is trying to get her interested in these things. So she's got a ball, and that's why, I, and she's telling you what to do with the ball, and that's why I, I showed it, because the ball, I, mean, I, I actually put together a few, now she wants to play with the ball, and she gives it to the chimp to play with the ball, and the chimp is interested in it, but not interested in sharing it, not interested in, in rolling it back and forth. Not interested in any, she's interested in playing with herself. It's fun. But she's not engaged with her partner in the same way. <laughs> so, all right, so there she goes. Now that was, a, I, that was a quick cut. So now we're going to a book reading scene, which again, 
the chimp, um, this is um, Annette, she's about three years old, as I say, and she's interested in the book. And uh, the caregiver is pointing out uh, things in the book, and she's interested. But she doesn't look back to share, and she doesn't point herself to share. So she's engaged with the book, and she likes the caregiver and interacts with the caregiver, but she doesn't form this triangle of you and me sharing attention to some third thing. And here she is with the book again. And she opens it for herself, but again, doesn't offer it to the, uh, to the human, doesn't point anything for the human. And she's just um, into it for herself. So this is my kind of schematic of what's going on here, is that the shared intentionality schema, the dual level schema, the cognitive schema that's going on here is uh, the blue part here is about action. So we have a joint goal to roll the bottle back and forth or to read the book together. But I have my role in it and you have your role in it. And that's all simultaneously present. Our sharedness, our doing it together, but I'm rolling it that way. You're rolling it this way. I'm looking at the book. You're pointing to the book. So we're doing something together, but you have your role and I have my role. So that's why I call it dual level. It's both shared and it's individual. And then the more uh, cognitive side of it is we're jointly attending to this thing together. We're jointly intending, attending to the ball. We're jointly attending to the book. And you have your perspective on it. You're seeing it from that angle. I'm seeing it from this angle. And so this is really... Um, this is literally, this is what I believe is the nine month revolution is the construction of this social cognitive schema um, by in the, in the context of which, or through which I should say, through which children, uh, young children start interacting with others in a way that great apes do not really do. What I want to do now for the, the rest of my time here is go over a number of different domains of um, human development uh, where you can see this schema. Everything is going to be trying to show you how this schema manifests itself in different domains of interaction, so of social interaction and communication and collaboration and so forth in a way that it doesn't with great apes. So we're going to be comparing uh, to great apes in almost all the cases. So communication. Now, obviously, humans use language, but um, and language is a whole complicated thing. But let's leave that aside for the moment, because I'm talking about these little babies who are the ones you saw so far, pretty much pre-linguistic. And let's think about, do humans communicate in a way before language that's already different from what great apes do? And that's what I'm going to claim they do. Now, great apes, and, and where that's going to be is in the gestural domain. So the human pointing gesture, which you saw before, you saw the child pointing to the book uh, and the apes didn't point. You saw the child holding up and showing and apes don't do that either. So these are things that are already structured by this shared intentionality schema, uh, which includes both skills and motivations. And, um, uh, and, and, and that's going to underlie the form of communication even before language. So here's the most what I would say is the most sophisticated thing that you see in apes is this little chimp wants to go for a walk and she wants mom to come with her. So here she goes and she, very deliberate, very intentional, I would say. She's pulling on mom to come with her and now mom is coming with her. Again, I, to, for me, very intentional, very deliberate, very thoughtful, if you want to even call it that. 
but it doesn't have this triadic structure. It's not you and me about some external entity. It's not pointing to something external, showing something, all right? It's about our activity together. So it's dyadic, it's you and me. I want you to walk with me. I want you to come with me. They gesture also for uh, play. They gesture for sex, for fighting, for grooming. So interactions between the two of us, but not you and me attending together to some external entity in this triadic way. Uh, this is another uh, version of the showing, but this is the po pointing. Um, this is a classic. Um, across all cultures, we see children doing this kind of pointing uh, at around 11 to 12 months is the kind of modal age in Western culture. Uh, even in cultures where the adults don't like to point because uh, it's impolite or whatever, uh, I don't have systematic data on this, but uh, some of my linguist and anthropological colleagues who've been to uh, cultures where pointing is considered impolite in adults. Nevertheless, the children uh, quite often point. And so in any case, it's, it's cross-culturally robust, although we don't have all the data that we would like. And again, uh, she does not want something from the adult. She just wants uh, the adult to share attention. Isn't that cool? Look at that. And here again is the share is the sharing. I'm just showing it very quickly. Again, the motive is just sharing by showing. Um, they also just to get a little bit of a slide toward language. They also do um, in parallel with the early language uh, iconic gestures, which have a symbolic element. So pointing is typically thought of as an index. I'm, I'm indexing you spatially over to something, but iconic gestures are symbolic. So this little girl, there's um, a puppet trying to operate an, uh, a toy that she knows how to operate, and she's going to show him how to operate it by showing him what he needs to do. Yeah, boys. Yeah. Okay. So she's saying, basically, you need to do with your body what I'm doing with my body. My, what I'm doing with my hand is supposed to be what you're doing with your hand. So, uh, so now we get this kind of triadic communication. She's communicating with the puppet about the toy, and she is doing it symbolically. So um, I believe evolutionarily, both pointing and iconic gestures uh, preceded language. And, and therefore, human communication had this structure uh, of cooperative motives and this cooperative triadic shared intentionality before language even came on the scene. And then language, of course, does all kinds of extra things. Okay, so there's one place where you can clearly see in very early development, before two years of age, and some of it before one year of age, you can already see humans communicating in unique ways before we even get to language and all of its complexities. Now, what about collaboration, sort of straight up collaboration? Um, this is a little um, set of studies where uh, basically, there's a toy inside this tube, and the child knows it's in there, and he's going to collaborate with the adult to get it out. Uh, but um, the adult is going to be difficult on purpose. That's part of the experiment. He's going to be difficult on purpose. Oh, he doesn't really do his role. The child says, look, do your thing. Okay. Now, and that behavior there, that pointing is... Grab it, do, do your thing, okay? So uh, the, the, the pointing is um, coordinating the collaboration. So this is what's important is that when the adult is not doing his part, the child is gonna communicate to re-engage the adult to play his part. And then 
the, he's supposed to freeze for 15 seconds, and then that's the experiment. And then after the 15 seconds is up, he comes back and to the chimp because uh, when we gave that one to the chimps, what they did was they grabbed one end with their hands, the other end with their feet, which are quite good, which are quite dexterous, and pulled it apart on their own and didn't bother to cooperate. Uh, so I'm going to give you one where they weren't able to do it on their own. Uh, and so in this, um, uh, uh, the, the, the chimp has to pull up this door. This panel is just to keep her from going around and trying to do it on her own. She pulls up this, and then the human will reach through and get the food. Uh, so she, but she pulls up the door, and the human reaches the food. And you're going to see them be successful, but I want you to pay attention to um, what the ape does when the human is not playing her role very well. Okay, so she's not reaching through. The, the chimp pulls up the door and she doesn't reach through and get the food and she's going to, she doesn't know what to do. She's kind of perplexed at what's happening. And instead of trying to communicate, like pointing or gesturing to get the human to play her role, she tries to do it herself. She says, get out of the way. Maybe I can do it myself. Now the 15 seconds is over and she's illustrating that she's ready. Okay, and she does it. So they succeed. They succeed at that. However, you're going to see in just a minute, um, if she was doing that with another chimpanzee, some people said, oh, well, maybe they collaborate better with other chimps. If she was doing that with another chimpanzee, the, the one who reached through and got the food would just eat it and not share it. So you're, you're going to see that in a minute. So it wouldn't go on. Uh, okay, so now in addition in collaboration, in addition to coordinating and reengaging one another when needed and asking the other one to play her role, another important dimension of cooperation is, uh, of collaboration, is sharing the spoils fairly at the end. That's what motivates things. As I just was mentioning uh, in the last slide, um, if they're not shared at the end, then the motivation for the one helping is um, not, uh, it, it goes down immediately. Uh, this is the work of Alicia Malis, who is now at UCL, by the way. I have no idea if she's on the webinar or not. Um, uh, and so this is a study where, um, we so have, what will the chimpanzee do? Sorry, um, I, I didn't. I didn't set it up right. Uh, um, this is a task where they have to pull together on the rope. Two of them have to pull together on the rope. It's strung through these little loops, and so if you pull by yourself, uh, the uh, rope just comes out, and you can't uh, do anything. Um, and so now, so what will the chimpanzee do? These are two young female chimps. This is actually two experiments filmed together for a, for a show. And removes the pegs to release she actually the opens the door to let the other one in. So she knows she needs the partner. That was one of the ideas of the, of the experiment. She knows she needs the partner. Um, but what we've done here, notice, is we have the food separated for them. This is actually a separate experiment, but they filmed them together it all in one. Uh, and so now um, they're going to pull it together very nicely and get the food. So they know they need the partner and they can collaborate. In this situation, wow. The we were blown away by, by these uh, results. But now, now what we're going to do, going to do the same thing, but the food is in the middle. The food is in the middle. It's not already separated for them. So the problem of dividing the spoils is solved for them in the first one, and now they've got to figure it out for themselves. 
Uh, this individual is dominant. This one is subordinate. She knows she's subordinate, so you're going to see her less than enthusiastic in her pulling. One of them pulls the blanket. But the dominant chimpanzee grabs all the food. Okay, so what do you think happened on the next trial? On the next trial, the subordinate individual quits cooperating. You know, the, 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 um, um, if you can't share the spoils at the end, you can't uh, develop this as an evolutionarily stable strategy. Now, here's some three-year-old German children, and you're going to see the different way they approach it. Now, I picked this particular video because the child on the right in the red is going to act a little bit like the dominant chimp, but you're going to see the difference. So they, this is, they're, they're already in the middle. This is four gummy bears in the middle here. So I'm not showing you the one where the, the food's already separated. Four gummy bears. Um, and this child is going to make a comment about, I don't have any, or they're none in mine over here. So you can ignore that. She's just, he's just noticing that, um, that, they're, that they're all in the middle. So they pull, and now the first little boy goes in and looks like he's going to grab them all. But if you notice, he doesn't grab them all. I think he only has one in his hand. This is, I don't have any over here. So he comes and he starts to take all three of the others. No. no. <laughs> so he takes two of them and leaves two for the other. So, and, and he, he took one, he took two, he took one. They each left some for the other. Both of them were in a position to take all of them and neither one of them did. And they can do this all day. <laughs> they, uh, this is a evolutionarily stable strategy because both of them are benefiting and in, to equal measure um, in this uh, situation. So they can work it out. Now, sometimes uh, one of them uh, wants to be a little bit, um, uh, sometimes one of them will actually grab more than their share. And in that case, what you most often get is one of them, uh, the, the one who got less sort of protesting a little bit and then the other one relenting and giving up. So even when one of them starts to be selfish, they have mechanisms for getting to an equal share. Now, then we tried to sort of ramp this idea up. What if the uh, spoils ended up being shared non-equally sort of by accident, as it were? Would they do something to repair it? So one of them is gonna end up with more than their share, and are they gonna do something about it? So the idea was that, um, uh, well, you'll see, let me just show you. So they're pulling this in together. It's the same basic idea as the other thing. They're pulling it together. But in this case, you have these four marbles here. So instead of gummy bears, they're marbles. They love the marbles because you can see right down here, they have this machine. They put them in and they go bling. But watch watch what we did. They're going to pull it in. They see the marbles. They know the marbles are coming. They've been exposed to this uh, apparatus a little bit before. And whoops, three to one side and one to the other side. Okay, and so almost this these are the best data I've ever gotten in a study in my life, I think. Okay. There's a control condition. In the control condition, they just come in and it's already three and one, no collaboration. They just come in and it's three and one. One guy gets the three, the other guy gets the one, almost never shares. I think the average sharing was 11% of the time. But in the situation you saw where they collaborate and pull them in and, it, and they're divided three to one. So they produce them collaboratively 
and we get the same split three to one, 80 something percent of the time, no overlap in distributions. Uh, 80% of the time, uh, the, uh, one, the, the lucky child shares one with the um, unlucky child. Now, she doesn't give all of them. So this is not generosity, sympathy, uh, uh, and all that. It's a sense of fairness because they only give one because it should be equal. So actually, the title of this paper is um, that collaboration facilitates equal sharing um, in children, but not in chimpanzees. So um, we think that this is at least indirect evidence of the natural home of a sense of fairness. Now, not sympathy and compassion. There's something I think a bit different. They're, they, you know, all mammal mothers show sympathy and compassion and helping for their offspring. I think that's evolutionarily quite old. If you think of morality as having a kind of a, a sympathy component, uh, this goes all the way back to ancient Greeks. Those, uh, morality has a kind of a sympathy component and it has a more fairness component. The sympathy is very evolutionarily old, at least among mammals. And, but the fairness component, I believe, is tied to collaboration, to sort of equal pay for equal work. Um, and so this um, uh, uh, shows that. If any of you are thinking about Franz de Waal's study, uh, um, uh, um, where the monkey rejects the uh, cucumber when he could have gotten grapes. I'm happy to answer a question about it, but um, that study has not replicated in six different labs. Six different labs have not replicated that when the control conditions are done appropriately. Basically, they don't like the cucumber if they think they have access to the grape. It has nothing to do with not getting an equal share to a partner. It's just disappointment in not getting the better food that they could have gotten. So anyway, this is now in collaboration. It's that we work together. And if you're not doing your part, I do something to get you to do your part. And at the end, we're going to share equally. So this is a cooperative, both skill and motivation that I think uh, you can see uh, being very different in human, young human children. These are all, all the children I'm going to show you today are preschool. So either they're infants, nine months old or preschoolers, but they're all before school age uh, even. Sociocultural learning. So one of the things that distinguishes humans in general is that we teach our young and we show them how to do things. Uh, I know that if you watch nature shows on TV, they always, they, the, the, the person doing the, uh, um, uh, the voiceover will say, oh, the mom is showing her kid how to do something. But there's really very little, almost no evidence uh, of any teaching in any non-human species. The best evidence is for uh, lions, but uh, in non-human primates, pretty much uh, almost nothing. Um, and uh, so that has two sides to it. One side is the adult. The adult has a, a sort of a cooperative motive to teach, to share information with the other one. At, uh, and, the, and the child is learning things uh, and conforming um, in a way that, um, again, other apes don't. So you're gonna watch here, uh, this is Tanya Benet, and she's going to use this ball to turn on the light. Now, the natural way to do that would be with your hand, right? And so the child could do it with her hand. That would be the easy way. But no, she's going to do it the way that she saw the adult do it. She's going to use the ball. And just as a kind of an additional uh, check to show that she's really conforming to the adult, because the adult expects her to do it a certain way, is the take. This isn't... Teaching is normative. I'm showing you how you ought to do it. And the child is picking up on the ought. Now look, she does it with her wrist, which again is not really a normal way. And the child wants to do it with her wrist rather than her hand. So this is really 
more than just imitation, it's conformity. It's doing it the way that adults do it. Um, we have a study where um, this is done separately with children and chimps, and they learn how to do something successfully on their own. So they, they put a ball in a hole here. So in this left hole over here, they put a ball and they're successful. And then each in their own separate experiment, they watch three conspecifics, three chimps for the chimps or three children for the child, be successful. That is, they get food, putting a ball in the other hole. And what you find is that the chimpanzees, I don't think we had a single instance of them shifting to the uh, hole that the other uh, ones used, maybe a couple. Uh, and the children, more than half the time, uh, they switched from the one that had been successful for them in the past, and they went to the one they saw other people doing. So again, the title of that paper was Children Conform to the Behavior of Others and Chimps Stick with What They Know. So again, this is more of this um, fitting in with the group by conforming is something that I believe humans are uh, naturally adapted to do to an extent that it's not in other great apes. And now I'll show you the extent of this. So this, I know a picture is worth a thousand words. So the goal is to take the rice over and, and put it over there. We're going to transfer the rice from one thing to another. You notice I cut away. There was more than one. And here's the little girl. <laughs> the putting your hands over the head is absolutely unnecessary. Uh, but um, that's what the adult did. So that's what she's going to do. That's been called over-imitation because sometimes you can talk to the children afterwards if they're old like this one is. I think this girl is four years old. And you talk to her and you say, is it necessary? You have to do your hands over your head in order um, to get the rice into the bucket. And they'll say, no, you don't need to. They're doing it because the adult did it. They're conforming to the adult. If a normative thing is this is the way you're supposed to do it. And they say, oh, this is the way I'm supposed to do it. So they do it the way the adult does it. That normative overlay is not something you're going to see in the social learning of apes. Um, uh, I do believe that apes think. I have a book uh, on the natural history of human thinking, and I want to contend that apes think in some very complex ways. I think they use logical inferences, uh, all kinds of things. Here's one example. of uh, This is studied by my colleague Joseph Call, and this um, chimp is going to be um, choosing a tool to use in a problem that's in the next room. So when she chooses the tool, she can't actually see the problem. So this is what I mean by thinking. She's holding, this is actually an orangutan. So she's holding the problem in her head, as it were. She's mentally representing the problem as she checks out. As she checks out these, and you'll see, she tests them very quickly. No, no, no. There it is. Okay, it needs to be long enough and it needs to be stiff enough to do this job here. And so I think it's a kind of what Piaget called mental trial and error. When she's looking at those things, she's thinking about, will this fit? Will this fit? Will this fit? And that's, she's simulating the problem and its solution. So I believe that's thinking. But then you see children doing things like this. The details don't matter, okay? They're playing this game together and they're trying to cooperate. One of them thinks you play the game one way and one of them thinks you play it another way. So um, this is a case where you could argue they're not really playing very cooperatively. But that's part of the point is they're trying to figure out how to do this. <laughs> this little boy is going to go back and say, I'm going to get the gate soul. It goes like this. 
And this guy's saying, I'm going to go get the man. So the idea here, I let you see it before I gave you the full uh, context. Uh, they each have been told that there's a different way to play the game. One of them, you put animals on animals. The other one, you put colors on colors. And as you see, they're, they're really, they want to do it the right way. This is the normative way. Uh, and each, and so they're trying to work together to do this. And so even when they have conflict, so I'm calling this cooperative thinking, uh, meaning that we are working on a common problem and you have your perspective and your views on it. And I have mine, but we're going to work it out and come to a common solution. This is what all of us who are scientists do all day, every day. We not, almost none of us do anything alone. We collaborate with others. Social norms. I'm going to skip this for time here. Um, uh, and uh, uh, all I was showing you there was that a study where children care when others are looking, they share more, and they um, uh, steal, uh, take somebody's stuff less if somebody's watching them. And chimpanzees don't care if somebody's watching them. They do whatever they're going to do. We live our lives constantly thinking about what are other people thinking of us, how, what kind of impression is it going to make from the choosing your clothes in the morning to everything you do all day. You're wondering how other people are going to view this. And uh, the chimps don't live their lives like that. They do their thing and they're not worried about that. So this is part of why norms have their force is because we care what other people think. When other people enforce a norm and say, no, you shouldn't do that. Not like that. We care and we, we want to, we want to um, uh, make a good impression. And so all the Goffman and all the people who've studied impression management, this is what they're talking about. And this is something that is not characteristic of other primates. And the ultimate of this is we, this is uh, Hannes Rokachi's research. We just study a rule, make up a game and we make up the rules and rules of course are normative. They govern how the game should be played. And this puppet is going to play it wrong. And you're, it doesn't matter what the game is. You just watch what the kid, the child does. And this is a three-year-old now, just three years old. And he wants the game to be played correctly, even though he's not even playing. Falsch. It's wrong. So he is so concerned with doing it the right way. He did it wrong. This is the right way. He cheated. This is a three-year-old now. Uh, so the three-year-old, not only are they conforming, when you go back to the social learning and the over-imitation, uh, they're conforming when they think the adult is engaging with them normatively. When the adult says, here's how you should do it, they conform, even when it's something they know is not necessary. This is how we do it. Um, and uh, then when they see somebody else doing it wrong, even at three years old, they are correcting them. Now, again, the child was not engaged with this uh, game. And so uh, it wasn't ruining the game for me or anything. Uh, I just want you to play it the right way. So this normative attitude is already emerging at around three years of age, where it's not just normative being normative, but enforcing normativity on others. Uh, and of course, that's one of the key elements of being a cooperative, being cooperative is enforcing cooperation uh, on others. Uh, so um, those are the main domains I wanted to go over. Let me just have a couple of quick points here before I end. Uh, and that is that if you're thinking of these behavioral things as, you know, depending on these uh, sort of 
delicate little experiments, uh, just point out to you another um, very striking feature of humans uh, in terms of morphology, in terms of their body. And that is of the uh, over 200 species of, non of primates, uh, 199 of them have eyes like the chimp on, the, on, on my left here. That is, um, they're all brown or black. Yes, they have white sclera, but it's behind. You can't really see it. If they look to the side, you can see a little bit. Looking straight ahead, you can hardly see it at all. And humans across all cultures all have big whites of the eyes. Cartoonists exploit this when they draw animals like bears. They give them these big white eyes. It makes them appear uh, cooperative, appear nice. So this um, one hypothesis is that um, um, humans uh, evolve these, they, they are advertising their gaze direction. They are showing where they're looking uh, because they're in a cooperative environment. They need joint attention to do tasks together um, and they need to see where the other one is looking so they can coordinate when they're collaborating. Uh, and since apes don't do this, um, they, uh, they, they've not evolved this, these kind of eyes. This is a very striking feature. Uh, it'd be nice to know when it emerged in evolution. I've asked my geneticist colleagues and they can't even do it because they don't have any candidate genes because there are no people without whites of the eyes. There aren't even any syndromes with people with whites of the eyes. So it's been genetically absolutely uh, gone to fixation. And this is um, uh, an indication that it was under very strong selective pressure because there's almost no variability left uh, in the human species. So anyway, our little study here was to show that um, great apes um, uh, when you're looking, if you look, if you close your eyes and look up, they look up. Uh, and if you look up only with your eyes, they don't. So they're following your head. They're not in the eyes. And with human children, it's the opposite. If you close your eyes and look up, they don't look up. But if you look up only with your eyes, they look up. So chimps are following the head, children are following the eyes. And so this shows a function in modern, uh, in the modern species uh, that could plausibly be connected to the evolution of this, uh, of this quite striking uh, morphological trait. These are cooperative eyes, okay? I'm, I, I'm showing you where I'm looking because it facilitates cooperation. If I'm in a competitive environment, I don't want you to know where I'm looking. Um, and so let me just uh, wrap up by um, saying that, uh, and I will say one, let me just say one thing cross-culturally, because I know that Sandra and others are very interested in the cultural dimensions of things. It is true that these are um, uh, mostly Western middle-class children that have been in most of the experiments, but that work is now being um, extended to a lot of other uh, cultures. And the general pattern, which I think will surprise no one, is at very early ages, like our nine months, the pointing and the iconic gestures and the very early joint attention and very early collaboration. Those are the same everywhere. These are little babies. These are one-year-olds, and that's the same everywhere. And then as they get older, of course, the social norms that they're exposed to uh, and the models they're exposed to and, and all of that, those, of course, vary widely across cultures. But being a psychologists interested mainly in the species as a whole, I would tend to emphasize that in all cultures, there's a sense of fairness, even though fairness will differ. Some cultures are more collectivist. Some of them are more based on merit, etc. But everybody has a sense of fairness, even though that the content of that sense of fairness might be different across cultures. All cultures have social norms, even though the content of them can be radically different. So um, I do think there are um, there are universal aspects 
of all of this that come of all of these cooperative skills and motivations that come from evolution. And then culture uh, fills out the content of that very, very differently in different cultures. So my overall conclusion with that more evolutionary uh, perspective in mind is that human children are adapted for cooperation and culture in ways that other great apes are not. And these adaptations are fundamental to uniquely human processes of cognition, communication, cooperation, and even morality. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mike, for a really fascinating overview of, uh, of your work and of, you know, state-of-the-art research. Uh, we have uh, questions coming in very, very fast, and I'm going to be asked them. I think I'm going to take the privilege of the chair and ask you a question first, if I may. And that, okay. and that relates to what you just said. And I think it will speak to our students, it will speak to, to LSC. So um, you are interested in humans as a species and so are we this is an important it's absolutely essential to do that i wanted to ask you how do you see the specific role of cultures with an s on unsettling disturbing uh challenging our baseline our cultural adaptation, uh, the, the role of culture with a capital C, if you will, can environments such as environments of poverty, war, conflict, or just social, sociocultural differences, the fact that we live in very different places with different uh, symbolic tools available to children, disturb the evolutionary pathway of the species? What's your What's your view on that specific role of culture? So, so, you know, I would say that from an evolutionary point of view, humans have evolved to create cultural things, including cultural norms, cultural practices. Um, and, and then succeeding generations of children are born into this cultural context. In, in evolutionary terms, it's, it, it's, it's called niche construction. We, we construct the own niche in which we now are adapted. Uh, Boyd and Richardson uh, talk about um, dual uh, evolution, um, uh, dual process theory is that um, uh, we inherit our environments as much as we inherit our uh, biological uh, capacity. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, something like language or social norms. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm bio biologically adapted for acquiring a language, but I have to hear one. I'm biologically adapted for follow, for conforming to social norms, for enforcing social norms, but that social norm could be kill your enemy. It could be anything, okay? Uh, it could be that, you know, the people living next door are infidels. Uh, whatever the cultural norm is, that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for it. Um, and I do believe, and this is a whole other discussion, most of the things that I'm talking about, I'm talking about modern humans in evolutionary terms, really the way they were adapted for hunter-gatherer life before civilization with its stratification, with its inequality of resources, uh, with its, um, you know, uh, um, in-group, out-group, with the next civilization over. And so one... Um, thought about this is that most of the adaptations I'm talking about were 
for humans living in hunter-gatherer lifestyles, where everybody's living in one big happy family. And yes, we may have a little in-group, out-group psychology, but we don't run into them much, <laughs> whatever. And it's very egalitarian within the culture. Once you get civilization, then you get this stratification, you get in-group, out-group. And now one way of thinking about the question is, can our adaptation for cooperation in small groups, can it scale up to modern cultural life without killing us all? Maybe we're going to kill one another in war. Maybe we're going to degrade our environment because of, um, you know, public goods problems that we can't deal with because the cooperation doesn't scale up to being worldwide. So um, um, I, th I think, it, uh, I think we're, uh, we're partially adapted for cultural life, but um, I think we're still catching up to this modern way of doing things and um, uh, all of the complexities and um, uh, um, yeah. And it leads to all, a lot of non-cooperative behavior at the same time. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. So let me take some questions that are coming from the audience. Um, what is the relationship between language and cooperation and which emerges first? Well, I have a very clear answer to that is cooperation is first. And I have a whole book on this where um, the, the human uh, motivation for just telling people things, sharing information, informing others of things. Look, you dropped your spear. Oh, look, you know, uh, or, or, or narrating. Oh, look, I'll tell you what I did uh, on my trip today or whatever. Uh, the motivation to just share information with others is cooperative. And um, the, uh, I, the, the, the language only works when you have common ground. And this goes to the Grice, originally Grice, also Sperber and Wilson relevance theory, uh, that we, when I point for you, we have to have some shared common ground. This doesn't mean anything by itself. You have, it has to be in the context of you're looking for a book and then I point to the book. So it had, so I believe that uniquely human communication all the way starting with pointing and iconic gestures is about uh, cooperative motives and cooperative cognition in the form of co common ground. And then linguistic symbols themselves, we have to know them in common ground. So we all know together, if we're speakers of English, that we know the word, I don't know what, tree, even though I've never seen you use or hear the word tree, I know you know it because you grew up in the same culture I did. So the conventions of a language are cooperative in the sense that they're, co they're coordination devices, as David Lewis called them, they're coordination devices uh, that we have to use cooperatively. So I believe cooperation is first and uniquely human communication uh, comes later and language grows out of that. Thank you. Okay, another question here. What is, in your opinion, uh, the effect of individualistic, collectivistic culture on cooperation? And do you consider this classification scientifically sound? How much of explanatory power do you think such cultural differences have on COVID-19 numbers, for example, in different countries worldwide. So this is bringing you straight into the, into the issue of the day. This is, this is pretty hard for an American, pretty embarrassing for an American, I should say. Um, I mean, it, you know, we all, all of us that are academics and, uh, what, you know, we, we grew up in a culture that considered individualistic American academics, but we just look in disbelief at people who, you know, want to run around without a mask in indoors with large crowds. You're saying, what are you, it's my right. I, you know, so I have no idea, but yes. Um, um, 
I don't know, as, as often in, in, in the social sciences, dichotomies are, uh, you know, oversimplified. And I don't know if the, the, if this construct of individualistic versus collectivistic, um, there are all kinds of things in the middle and there are cultures that probably are more individualistic in some domains and collectivistic in others. But it is true that the East Asian cultures and cultures that are mainly thought of as more uh, collectivistic, a lot of their social norms are about doing things for the group and not uh, bragging and not trying to look like you're better than other people and and being more, uh, yeah, and, and in you know the more individualistic cultures, there are still norms of cooperation, but one of the norms is, you know, distinguish yourself and be different and all that. So um, uh, yes, they, they can, uh, they can have absolutely important consequences for cooperation, but they can't, they, um, uh, in the individualistic cultures, have, a, have a, a constraint on them. They have a governor on the process uh, because if you become too uh, uh, individualistic, everything's going to fall apart, as I hope we're not witnessing now in my country. Thank you, Mike. I'm going to ask, I, I, I'm going to ask two questions here together. So, because we are running out of time, so you can try to address them. One is, thank you for a fascinating lecture. What are your thoughts on fostering, increasing this drive for cooperation, for example, in young children with severe autism who need to be taught to follow the direction of a pointing finger, uh, something that doesn't come naturally to them. And then another question from our my colleague uh, from PBS, uh, Dr. Ilka Gleibs. Thank you very much for the talk. How did we make this evolutionary step to cooperation? What forced humans to cooperate and other primates to show less? Um, again, I mean, some people, there, there's a whole tradition in evolutionary theory that, uh, you know, the survival of the fittest and cooperation is a big problem because um, everybody's, you know, you have to look out for yourself or you won't be surviving and having children. But that's why this concept of interdependence is key. There's a recognition that I depend on you and you depend on me and we're in this together. And it makes no sense. If I need you as a collaborative partner, it makes no sense for me to be mean to you. And if you're hungry, I need to feed you so that we can continue collaborating. So the interdependence is the concept that gets you from selfish evolution to, uh, and, and this is not unique to humans. There are all kinds of uh, things in evolution of symbiotic relationships and things where individuals both benefit. So it's a mutualistic situation where both benefit. And I think the particular case of humans, it was probably very largely in the foraging context that uh, one of the chimps uh, do some kind of things where they uh, surround a prey or whatever, but nothing like humans. And they don't share it at the end the same way humans do and all that. So I believe it's probably in foraging. Collaborative childcare is something that um, humans do that other mammals uh, don't really, or sorry, and other primates don't do. So we'll have one, uh, one uh, adult taking care of a bunch of children while the others are out foraging or whatever. And um, Sarah Hurdy, uh, in her cooperative breeding hypothesis makes a big deal about uh, that. So, but I think they go together, cooperative foraging and cooperative childcare kind of fit together. So I think that's the, the context. Um, as for uh, children with autism, I've been, you know, fascinated with them for uh, my whole career. I've never really done much. I've done a couple little things, but not much with them. And I don't really know. Um, uh, I'm afraid I just don't know what one can do. I will say that, um, 
the two contexts that facilitate collaboration, that facilitate a cooperative mindset, uh, solidarity with others, is one collaboration when we work together. When you work with someone on a project, you naturally care about them more. You think they deserve results more. And the other, which is part of our current problem, is emerges with human culture, and that's similarity. So this is the in-group, out-group. We tend to trust people in our in-group more. We tend to care about our reputation more with the in-group and not with the out-group. Uh, we help people in-group more than out-group. And so um, uh, collaboration and similarity, the first with the sort of collaborative foraging, the second with culture, where we recognize members in our culture by similarity. And that worked fine with hunter-gatherers where you didn't run into other cultures that much. And if you did, you kind of stayed away from them. In modern civilization, the in-group, out-group uh, is obviously the source of many of our uh, problems. But in terms of um, uh, uh, children with autism, where you have to teach them all the uh, smallest things, I would say the, that, you know, we have obviously, it's a, an autism spectrum. There's a large spectrum. Um, and the ones who are severely uh, autistic, I would think if they have a motivational issue, they're not even motivated to share, then I think you're really limited in what you can do. If you get more high, highly functioning children um, and they sort of have a little more of the motivation, then I think you could probably teach them skills to help them uh, uh, realize that motivation in some ways that they might not think of on their own. But I, I, I wish I had a magic bullet, but I'm sorry, I don't. Yes. Thank you, uh, Mike. Thank you very much. I think in a way, I mean, there was a question here also from my colleague, Alex Gillespie, asking us, how, Hi, can, Alex. <laughs> how, can, you, how can culture enhance, leverage, or, you know, augment, increase cooperation? And I, I think you, you answered that. In well, I mean, if you look at Boyd and Richardson, who have been the ones who talked about this the, the most, that you need both carrots and sticks, right? You need, you need things that you need your cultural institutions set up so that everyone sees that participating in the institutions is to everyone's benefit, including themselves. And you need sticks, which is mainly social norms. And, uh, you know, uh, when, when, uh, you know, in, in, in the last decade or two, we've eradicated smoking, uh, like, you know, in public places like that. Uh, now, maybe that was an easy case, but uh, social norms can, uh, uh, can affect uh, cultural change uh, quite uh, rapidly when everybody buys in, but that's, uh, that, that's the problem. But, but, but basically uh, um, I do think that um, people, you know, who are in charge of public policy uh, need to think about structuring institutions so that our, we humans are both selfish and cooperative at the same time. I don't, I'm obviously don't mean to downplay our selfish if, um, uh, motivations, which we have also, but we need to structure um, institutions that foster the and, and 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 provide benefits to people who enter into them cooperatively and social norms for discouraging non-cooperative behavior. So that's not exactly rocket science, but that's what uh, that I think that's the straightforward thing that we have to do. Constructing such institutions is not easy in that as we as we know. And a place like the United States today, it's like we're all just looking with these eyes like how could this happen I, th I thought cooperation was so institutionalized uh, the, the 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 cooperative aspects of a de democratic uh, society were so um in institutionalized that there wouldn't anything you can do about it but people who don't care about breaking social norms 
uh, what, what do you do with them? Yeah. Indeed, and perhaps that's a good reminder that, uh, you know, culture, cooperation are a fragile achievement. They are. Not to be taken for granted. Absolutely. We need to it and to carry on thinking about them as normative guides uh, for our life together. So thank you very much, Michael, for this uh, wonderful, fascinating uh, exposition. Uh, thank you, everyone for uh, coming along and we hope to see you again soon here in our online events. Goodbye now.